Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 137, E.D. Levitt, Steam-Powered Pumping Pioneer. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about fresh water and steam power. For centuries before the Quabbin Reservoir opened, Boston struggled to provide enough clean, fresh water for its growing population. One of the solutions to this problem was a new reservoir built at Chestnut Hill in the 1870s. The pumping station at that reservoir was home to enormous steam-powered pumping engines, and they're preserved today as the Metropolitan Waterworks Museum. Eric Peterson from the museum is going to join us in just a few minutes to talk about the history of Boston's water supply, steam power, and a brilliant engineer who designed the steam pumps that provided Boston's water. But before we talk to Eric about engineer E.D. Levitt, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is called Eden on the Charles, The Making of Boston by Michael Rawson. You might have noticed that I'm a bit of an infrastructure nerd, and this is one of my go-to books about the infrastructure that makes up Boston. I've used this book as a source for our shows about annexation, perambulating the bounds, and the Motherbrook. It's both a history of 400 years of urban planning in Boston and the flip side of that, which is to say the environmental history of the city. Here's how the publisher's website describes the book. Drinking a glass of tap water. Strolling in a park. Hopping a train for the suburbs. Some aspects of city life are so familiar that we don't think twice about them. But such simple actions are structured by complex relationships with our natural world. The contours of these relationships, social, cultural, political, economic, and legal, were established during America's first great period of urbanization in the 19th century. And Boston, one of the earliest cities in America, often led the nation in designing them. A richly textured cultural and social history of the development of 19th century Boston, this book provides a new environmental perspective on the creation of America's first cities. Eden on the Charles explores how Bostonians channeled country lakes through miles of pipeline to provide clean water, dredged the ocean to deepen the harbor, filled tidal flats and covered the peninsula with houses, shops, and factories, and created a metropolitan system of parks and greenways, facilitating the conversion of fields into suburbs. The book shows how, in Boston, different class and ethnic groups brought rival ideas of nature and competing visions of a city upon a hill to the process of urbanization, and were forced to conform their goals to the realities of Boston's distinctive natural setting. The outcomes of their battles for control over the city's development were ultimately recorded in the very fabric of Boston itself. In Boston's history, we find the seeds of the environmental relationships that, for better or worse, have defined urban America to this day. If you'd like to know more about the development of Boston's systems of water and sewage, its filled land and dredged harbor created today's sprawling city from the Puritan village on a peninsula that it evolved from, check out the link to buy the book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk at the main library in Copley Square this Thursday, June 20th. Melnia Cass was a prolific activist in the early and mid-20th century who became affectionately known as the First Lady of Roxbury. Over a long career, she worked on everything from women's suffrage to the settlement house movement to school desegregation. Early in her career, she worked directly with NAACP co-founder William Monroe Trotter, who we discussed in our show about Black Boston's protests against the racist film Birth of a Nation. Later in her career, she would be president of the NAACP Boston chapter. Before her death in 1978, she'd been granted at least three honorary doctorates by Boston schools, a swimming pool and skating rink had been named after her, and Mayor John Collins had declared a citywide Melnia Cast Day. This event focuses on the very earliest days of her career as an activist, though. When she was 21 years old, Melnia Jones married Marshall Cass, a soldier who was soon deployed to Europe during the First World War. While Marshall was away, Melnia moved in with her new mother-in-law, Rosa Brown. Rosa was a fierce suffragist and an early member of the NAACP. Through Rosa's club memberships, Melnia Cass met a group she later described as women whom we looked up to, who were leaders in the community, just simple leaders. They were just simply people who lived in the community who'd try to help you and tell you things to do. Just good neighbors, that's all. These role models inspired a lifetime of service to our community, 
and they're the topic of Thursday's talk titled Bridging the Gap. Here's how the library website describes it. Melnia Cass is well known for organizing the sit-ins over school segregation in Boston and leading the fights over urban renewal and highway construction in the South End and Roxbury. However, a young Melnia Cass in 1919 first learned community organizing from her mother-in-law, Rosa Brown. Join us to learn how Rosa Brown helped guide Melnia Cass. We'll link to details about the event in this week's show notes. Before I move on to the interview with Eric Peterson, I want to say thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. We love that podcasts are free to listen to, but unfortunately, they do cost money to create. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us cover the cost of making the show, as well as improvements, like upgraded media hosting, access to finally get the show into Spotify, and new subscriptions to research databases. There are special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, ranging from a sticker and access to our episode scripts, to a monthly live video chat, to a special walking tour hosted by us. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Joining us now is Eric Peterson. Eric's the executive director at the Waterworks Museum, which is, in my opinion, one of Boston's most underrated historic sites. We met Eric at History Camp Boston back in March, and he presented about a 19th century mechanical engineer and steam engine designer named Erasmus Darwin Levitt Jr. Eric Peterson, thanks for joining us today. Uh, It's a real pleasure. Now, we are going to ask you about E.D. Levitt, Erasmus Darwin Levitt. But before we do, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about the museum where you work? Sure. Uh, so I work at the Metropolitan Waterworks Museum. Uh, it's on the edge of the Chestnut Hill Reservoir in Chestnut Hill, right out on the edge of Boston, right across the way from Boston College. Uh, and the museum is inside the original 1887 pumping station for the city of Boston, uh, really the flagship ship station. And within that Preserve Station are uh, these incredible steam engines that were the equipment that pumped the water for the city of Boston for almost 100 years. Uh, so it's entirely intact, at least our portion of it. And uh, it's it's pretty amazing, very unique view into the infrastructure of a metropolis. And we talk about a bunch of different themes connected to the city of Boston. So it, it's, it's really a kind of a different way to understand the history of Boston and really the history of the growth of any large city probably in the world. So why did Boston need a reservoir and a a pumping station at Chestnut Hill? Well, that goes back, uh, it's kind of a long story. It goes back really until the very beginning of uh, the Shawmut Peninsula and and the growth of the city of Boston. From the very beginning, Boston was challenged with uh, a limited water supply and through various uh, dealings with the legislature, it took a long time for a real legitimate water supply to be brought to the city of Boston and, and the investment to be made. So all kinds of uh, various ways were uh, to bring water to the city, uh, to, to, to its citizens were tried, but it really wasn't until the 1840s that a real effort was made. And not until the 1870s that that the technology was available to really make something that was uh, a, a comprehensive system that was big enough uh, to address a very large population or a much quickly growing population. The reservoir was essential part of that, uh, but it's just one small part of a very much more complicated system. Was the water that was going to the Chestnut Hill Reservoir, was that constituate water or is that from one of the, the later water sources? Uh, originally, it was, uh, yes, the constituate aqueduct out in Natick brought the, uh, brought the water to uh, this reservoir at some point. But also it was filled by the Sudbury aqueduct system and even eventually by the Quabbin system. So that reservoir that's right outside our door is really a, uh, a storage reservoir and not so much a, a supply. Essentially, it's, it's bringing water closer to the city of Boston. That was the whole idea of having it there so it can be available in, in the uh, later part of the 19th century. Eventually, 
that was less necessary as the system became more modernized. And now all our water, most of the city was water anyway, comes from the Coabin Reservoir. So I think you said the the pumping station opened in the 1870s. And when, no, when did nope. it? 1870 was when the reservoir was built. Uh, the pumping station itself was not built until 1887. And when did it go out of operation? Uh, well, it was decommissioned in the mid 70s uh, while a brand new pressurized aqueduct system was being installed for the city of Boston. But typically of Boston, uh, that didn't work right away. It kind of broke. <laughs> Uh, so the, the site had to be brought online for a couple of more years uh, until that could be repaired properly. Uh, and it really was a, a big dig-like effort. And ultimately, when it was repaired and fixed, then the site was completely decommissioned. Probably in 1980, it would have been completely shut down, I think. Now, I remember, I think it was 2010, a, a massive break in the Quabbin Aqueduct in Weston, and there was a, a boil water warning at the time. And I know the city went to backup water supplies during that outage. That didn't go to the Chestnut Hill Reservoir, did it? It did. It did. It was an amazing day because I came to work as a normal day and there were police and and tape all around the reservoir and and water bubbling out of the middle of it. It was pretty incredible. Uh, And yes, so the backup supply that it has become was uh, utilized and it was it was the water we drank, and we did have to boil it. <laughs> uh, in the town I live in, we we got it, and we did boil it, because I look at it most days, and it's not anything you really want to drink out uh, right now, anyway. But the system, it was amazing, because the MWRA, who manages the water system, had everything in place ready for such an emergency. And there's a underground, very modern pumping station just a little ways down from where we are at the museum. Uh, and that just kicked right in, and... That water was able to flow out and was somewhat clean at that site and flow out to the rest of the city of Boston and did it did its job. So, yeah, it was an amazing thing. Uh, when there's not a water-based emergency and it's just a normal day at the museum, what can a visitor expect to see? Uh, yes, uh, most days aren't an emergency here. Um, <laughs> well, what they can expect to see, first of all, the building we're in is, is just amazing. Uh, it's completely a landmark uh, it's the kind of place that you drive by, and many people that come in have driven by this place most of their lives, never actually been inside. Uh, it's a magnificent structure, and within the structure are some of the largest pieces of equipment that you can possibly imagine. Uh, it's a cathedral-like effect on the inside in our engine room, and it's just something that, well, certainly when I walked in the door, I... I'm still amazed after working almost 10 years at the, at the Waterworks Museum. In addition to that, we have a bunch of modern museum aspects. We have a modern conference room, which also serves as a gallery. Uh, so we have uh, exhibits frequently uh, up there. We have modern displays and exhibits all throughout the museum. So we're sort of on the edge of, of the past and, and the present in the sense that we have digital things, uh, and we have old things uh, all together. So there's a lot to see. Now, switching gears, thank you for telling us about the, the Waterworks Museum. <laughs> sure. I wanted to ask how you became interested in researching Erasmus Darwin-Levitt. Is it connected to the Waterworks? It is. One of the pieces of equipment here, we have three giant pumps here in the museum, the most important pump, and really the reason why this site was saved and not turned into a condominium complex, which is the, what happened to the adjacent buildings here on the eight-acre site, was the fact that there is a machine here that's a national uh, mechanical engineering landmark, and it's visually stunning. When I first started working here, I, I was always amazed by that particular piece of equipment. As I started to learn more, uh, when I was originally hired at the museum, I was a collections person. I had recently learned uh, from museum study school how to catalog collection items and, and use a database. So I was able to go up on that machine and putter around, and I was completely taken by how amazing it was. And the other part about that was nobody really knew much about it about the person that made it, about how it got to be there. We knew some basic things, but 
there was a lot of mystery connected to that. And over the years, that's really uh, interested me in, in trying to figure out, well, first of all, who is this guy that made this thing? Uh, what is the story behind it? And why is it that we don't remember him? That's what's really uh, compelling to me and really motivates me to want to talk about the guy. And when I talk about the guy, I talk about also the era because it's a really great way to sort of delve into a, a kind of a complicated part of American history, a very exciting part, I think, but a part that's, that tends to be forgotten because uh, there's not really any wars going on and there's a little less drama and it's more about industrialization and, and most people aren't that interested in that. But the story of Levitt really ties into so many things as well as the city of Boston. So it, it's a great entry point into uh, all kinds of Boston history. When we talk about the guy, the guy is Erasmus Darwin Levitt Jr. And during during his life, he went by E.D. Levitt, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. And he didn't have the education that we might expect an engineer to have today, right? No, that's correct. He was entirely self-taught. He left school when he was 16. And throughout his career, he really learned by doing and he learned by being exposed to other uh, steam engineers and, and the science and uh, technology of steam. Uh, but he never really had any formal education, uh, which is ironic because by the end of his life, he had gathered, boy, I'd say almost a dozen different certificates and honor honorariums from very many distinguished organizations and associations. But again, that era was, it was very common for people to be non-academic uh, and to be self-taught. So as somebody who has, is self-educated, how does he get a foot in the door? How does he start his career in, a long career really, in, in steam engine, steam power? Well, it all started in Lowell, uh, where he was born. Uh, and I am fully convinced that Lowell needs to have a statue to this guy because he is one of their native-born heroes. Kerouac's great, but but Levitt needs his own little spot. But that's where he learned. And, and at that time, and Lowell was just an amazing, I mean, it probably was the most technolo technologically advanced city, in, certainly in the United States. And there was so much going on. And he seemed to be very adept at uh, mechanical things. His mind was very quick. Uh, and he was able to learn and, and, and really teach himself. So that was the start of his career, uh, where the, in a city where the mills were bustling uh, and just an amazing uh, growth. And so he was exposed to all kinds of new technologies. And I think more than that, the seeing the possibilities that technology, what it could do. It was at that time, of course, the river power was, was pushing uh, most of the things that were going on in Lowell. But Steam power was coming in pretty quickly, and, and he saw that, and I think he saw that there was really incredible potential with that, uh, and throughout his career, he really pushed the limit of what steam power could do, which is another reason why I think he should be recognized. I find it very sad that he's completely unknown, Even and I've done quite a bit of research about him. Uh, I know very little about the man himself. But his accomplishments do remain, so, so that's somewhere to, to, to get a hold of the story. It's really amazing to me that, that throughout all this, he's been forgotten. But anyway, that's, that's a sidebar. So what, what era are we talking about? When is he getting his start? Uh, so he is born in the 1840s. Uh, so this was a time really when the, uh, and most of the United States was agrarian. And uh, so it was, it was still uh, a, a small country that was finding itself. Uh, but in the town of Lowell and, and a few other places, there was the beginning of the idea of manufacturing and uh, the, the roots really of industrialization that would propel the, the nation forward for the next hundred years at least. But this was a time when, when Lowell would have been very unique uh, in the sense that there was uh, all kinds of uh, mechanical and manufacturing and, and where really, really capitalistic uh, efforts were started right there in that city. Yeah, by the uh, time and when this airs, we will have just done an episode on uh, the proposed monorail system for Boston in the 1880s and 90s, which was also oh, okay. sort of a product of a, a Lowell 
venture, um, Joe V. Miggs and uh, Benjamin Butler were sure. based out of yep. Lowell. So we'll be yep. fresh in people's minds. Good, good. Well, the, the I should also plug our sister museum, the Charles River Museum of the Industry that's just in Waltham here, because they just have an, a new exhibit that's about the very beginning capitalist efforts of industrialization, uh, starting in Lowell uh, with guys like Amos Lawrence and, and Lowell and others that pulled together the capital and had the the broad ideas of manufacturing and, and you know using raw materials and using labor and using capital altogether to really kickstart this this whole change in the country. Uh, but when Lowell was born, uh, it wasn't like that. It was it was very agrarian, and so those the beginnings of industrialization were you know, just sort of starting. And uh, around that time, of course, the railroads were starting to happen. Uh, so when he was a young man, he had to look around, and and I'm sure he was excited, possibly scared, as many were at that time, of of where this was going to go. But he got involved right away, and and was one of those guys that that made it go. So yes, the early his early life in Lowell, uh, and then soon after leaving college, when he he started working in the mills. I mean, I'm leaving high school. I'm sorry. Uh, he started working in the mills, and then almost immediately began working for uh, the manufacturing companies that were starting to spring up around New England. Ultimately, he went to Providence and learned there uh, at a very uh, fast-growing and a very big industry that was happening out in in Providence of of steam manufacturing. Steam technology was really taking off there. Uh, And he would come back up to Boston and go down to Providence. And uh, most of those areas uh, were really – exploding with uh, new companies and new ideas. And and so he got in on all of that right when it was happening. So I know from your presentation at History Camp that at least later on, Levitt's very associated with giant steam pumping engines. Is, is that what he was working on in, in Lowell and later in Providence or was it uh, other projects at that point? Uh, no, in Lowell, really, he was sort of uh, just doing basic mechanical things. Uh, working in the mills, he was seeing power transmission there, in other words, mostly from uh, the river to machinery, but also uh, at that point, steam technology was starting to happen. Uh, when he went to the other places, it was, yes, the beginning of steam technology, but at that point, uh, he had not been involved with pumping engines. It was more about heavy-duty manufacturing. So the sites that he worked at uh, were beginning to create uh, very large pieces of equipment that could either support infrastructure for cities or uh, or companies, uh, whether that – a lot of it was marine uh, influence because at that time, of course, ships and, and steel-hulled ships in particular were, were starting to be built, and those were not powered by wind. They were powered by steam. So he was – slowly uh, getting involved in, in, in an industry that was that was starting to take off. If Levitt was born in the 1840s, he would have been of, of prime soldiering age when the Civil War rolled around. What, what did he do during the war years? That's exactly right. In 1862, he enlisted. Uh, he was in his 20s, and so he was ready to go. And, uh, and there was no evidence that he was at all reluctant to do that. In fact, uh, like many of his era, they were ready to fight. He had at that point enough technological experience to be of value to the union side uh, related to uh, marine steam technology. Uh, He was a machinist uh, at that point, rudimentarily trained. Uh, He had worked at some big companies, but really was still very young. And then he served on a gunboat as uh, one of its uh, engineers, uh, which patrolled the uh, the coast of Florida and, and uh, the southern area to try to – it was part of the blockade to prevent uh, supplies coming to uh, the rebel cause. And while he was doing that, he saw action. So it, it was a big part of his life, uh, eventually really, really marked him, I think, because there was a sense of duty that was instilled in him with that uh, effort. Uh, he He did work quite a bit on making sure that steamship, which was called the Sagamore. Uh, he made sure that thing operated properly uh, and did its job. And And he did see people die. 
so he came away from that experience uh, marked uh, as all of his generation were that served in the war, certainly, and even those that weren't weren't in the war were influenced by it. Uh, but that experience he, he carried with him to the point where he uh, there is a signature that he always put on all his engines, uh, which was a ship's wheel. Uh, and it's my belief that he was always trying to recreate those moments on board the Sagamore because that ship's wheel tends to look very much like the steering wheel of the, of the, uh, of the Sagamore, which is still uh, preserved at a museum. I believe it's in Connecticut. I mean, that's just my supposition, but certainly all his steam engines uh, have that as a signature. And, and so there was always a sense of a marine interest in his life. Uh, he was frequently on ships across the uh, Atlantic when he became a famous steam engineer. So, so that service in the, in the Civil War and, and being on a, uh, a boat, uh, I think, really impacted him. So how does he then make the jump from sort of this incipient talent, self-taught, working as a, an engineer on a ship or a, a, maybe a mechanics mate on a ship to being able to put his own designs into production and working on these large projects? Well, he uh, near the end of the war, the Navy recognized his talents, and we don't really know much about how that happened, but they decided that he should serve uh, in Annapolis as a steam instructor, which is interesting because, of course, he would have been in his 20s teaching others that were really about the same age as him. But uh, he worked there for a couple of years as an instructor, and I think – that experience made him feel like he had enough uh, together to maybe start a business on his own. Between that and his previous work in companies around New England. So it, it really wasn't much after the Civil War that he put out his own shingle and started to work as his own, uh, as a designer of steam equipment. And it, it was, I think, a difficult time for him. Uh, in fact, he ended up living at home. Uh, in Lowell with his family uh, in his parents' house until he was 30 years old, which I find amazing. He had two kids. They were all crammed into a house, uh, you know, about 10 people there with, he had brothers and sisters. I, I suspect this is probably typical of that era, particularly post-Civil War, immediately after the Civil War, when, when there was, uh, the economy was not good. And there was a lot of sense of uncertainty uh, and trying to figure out what was going to happen during Reconstruction. So, yeah, there he was at home, but he was still working as a steam engineer. And, in fact, the, the census uh, records uh, indicate that as his chosen title. So he knew where his career was going. Uh, it just really hadn't taken off quite yet. And when it does, he becomes associated with these these very large steam pumping engines. And some of his first That's ones right. are around this area, right? That's right. In, in Lynn, I believe it was Lynn was the first uh, – Waterworks that he worked for, uh, he had got at this point. He was he had a, a network of uh, connections, and somebody said, "Well, you know, why don't you give this guy a shot at this Waterworks?" He even at that point was confident enough to create a very large steam engine. I mean, we're talking probably fifty feet tall oh, wow. uh, that would provide city uh, water for the city of Lynn. It was a relatively simple design. Uh, and based on previous designs, really from the 1870s, and th at this point, it's yeah, it's still the 1870s. So he's he's right there with the rest of them that are building stuff. Uh, he's learning from things like the uh, the 1876 exposition in Philadelphia. Uh, that was a huge breakthrough for steam equipment then, because uh, at that point, a very large Corliss engine was uh, shown to the public that actually powered the entire exposition there. Uh, and this was typical of that era to learn from exposure to world fairs and, and this kind of thing, uh, where you could see other equipment and meet other manufacturers. And through his exposure to that, he said, well, I can do this. And he did it for Lynn, and then very quickly after that for the city of Lawrence. And both of these uh, were very successful because his design emphasized efficiency and prior to that, there was, uh, you know, you, you had a lot of different designs of steam equipment, but they tend to just be all over the place. They didn't really do their job that well, uh, and they tended to use a lot of coal uh, and to be very expensive and really were considered excessive. 
especially when town fathers had to uh, invest in such things. But with his emphasis on efficiency, they perked up and said, well, hold on now. We, in the long term, with this piece of equipment, we could actually save a bunch of money. Uh, this is a design that makes sense to us. And when that became known, uh, it really was, it really took Levitt to the next level. Everybody started to talk about the idea that you could be efficient with your, uh, with your steam equipment. Uh, you could use less coal and to more, uh, better effect. And at the same time, he's continuing these basic designs that were sort of, uh, current of the time. Uh, so their equipment was built to last forever. I mean, it really, they tend to overbuild these things. I mean, so, which is why, they, some of them still exist today. I mean, they're just really beastie things. Yes, he was uh, influenced by the what he saw around him, but he had that confidence, certainly from his uh, earlier years, uh, to then go on his own and, and really do something special. And it was after Lawrence and uh, Lynn that the word got around that this guy was uh, was somebody to to look to if you had an issue, if you needed something done. So Levitt gets very tightly associated with these large-scale pumping engines. He has them in Lawrence and Lynn, but then eventually he's going to relocate from the Boston area to the shores of Lake Superior in Michigan. So what inspired that move? Why did he move out of this area? Well, it, to me, that's this is just, it, the story becomes absolutely fascinating. So Levitt at that point had moved to Cambridge, uh, I lived in Cambridgeport and uh, set up an office there. Uh, so he was away from his parents finally. Uh, and his brother was also, I think his brother got him to move here. He was a Presbyterian minister for the city of Cambridge. And while he was in Cambridge, uh, he had heard about uh, the need for an engineer up in Michigan. His name was given out to the man that was managing this giant concern, and his name was Alexander Agassiz. Now, Alexander Agassiz was the son of Louis Agassiz, of course, living in Cambridge. He created the uh, Boston Zoological Museum collection, uh, was very, very famous guy. And his son was following in his footsteps when, just by chance, he happened to be on an expedition up in Michigan. And he got involved in this copper mining concern that really wasn't doing very well. And this was, of course, uh, this was in the 1870s. Essentially, he reorganized the entire effort and what turned out ultimately to be one of the biggest copper loads, certainly in modern times. I mean, it was the copper spot for darn near 100 years. And, and it made people incredibly rich. It took a while to get there. And Alexander Agassiz was very challenged to try to make this operation work. And they're challenged for a bunch of different reasons, uh, one of which was because the way copper was removed was very rudimentary at that time, and it had to be uh, reconsidered. Uh, the type of copper that was up there did not come out in big chunks. It was uh, wrapped up in, in rock, so that had to be separated and the efforts involved in getting that copper out of the ground required somebody that knew real big equipment and that knew, uh, that was able to you pump water because water was used to wash the copper off and clean it and, and get it ready to be, uh, processed. Uh, and water was also, you needed to be pumped out of these really deep holes in the ground. Some of them were more than a mile down in the ground up there in, in Michigan. So ultimately, uh, Levitt, name came to Agassiz and Agassiz invited him to come up there and it started a relationship that lasted 50 years. Uh, so it was a huge part of Levitt's life uh, and it and it really has an, an impact on the city of Boston. So ultimately, Agassiz and Levitt worked together to rebuild this mine and it became incredibly productive, mostly because Agassiz said, Levitt, I want you to build the biggest things you can possibly build. There is no limit and it's pretty – it was kind of a macho world up there where you build – I mean, these things are immense. Now, we're talking what used to be 40, 50 feet was 60, 70, 80 feet tall. I mean, immense pieces of equipment. Often, you would never even see them because they would be in the ground or they would be hidden away somewhere. They weren't really obvious to see, and so which is one reason why a lot of that period is forgotten. 
But Agassi wanted to, to build for the long term. And he also had a sense that maybe that load that they were sitting on at the, uh, this was called the Calumet and Hecla Mining Company uh, in Houghton County, uh, Michigan. He suspected, and he was right, that this was an immense vein. The problem was getting it out of there. And so Levitt spent all those years figuring out ways to do that. And he had really an open check. He, he was very willing to chuck uh, equipment that, was, uh, that wasn't doing the job and get all new stuff. I mean, that, there was many stories of that happening. And Agassi was fine to, to put the capital towards doing that. And, and it w- because the strategy was build big and build for the long term. And ultimately, that worked out really well for everybody, particularly for investors from the city of Boston. So when you look at the, our steam engine here at the Waterworks Museum, the Levitt's engine, it is directly connected to the growth of the city of Boston in so many ways because behind it were the investments of of some of the of the Brahmins of the city. Uh, for example, uh, Henry Higginson, who ultimately built the uh, uh, Symphony Hall. Yes, of course. I knew his name was familiar. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and a, very much a philanthropist. Uh, all, much of his money came from his investments in the copper mines. Uh, you had uh, a lot of other people that were, were connected there. Uh, the Lyman family, the Lyman estate out in Waltham, they made millions of dollars and, and tens of millions, really. It was, it was hugely successful. Not right away, but ultimately by the 1880s and 90s, these people were taking home massive amounts of money. Uh, another guy was Shaw. Uh, who was uh, he was the uncle of the uh, 54th Regiment guy that died, uh, you know, in the All Black Regiment. Uh, another founder uh, and Brahmin of the city of Boston. So when you look at that engine, and I, li- I love to tell people about this, this was really connected to the growth of the city at a time at the golden age of Boston when uh, money was flowing out for investment and back in ten times over from the profit. And so the city itself was energized because these capital investments could be made in uh, industrial concerns, in uh, commercial aspects, essential, almost as essential as the water itself. Yeah, it's such a boom time for the city of Boston between the, the sudden growth in population, we're physically growing the boundaries of the city through annexation, through landfill, all these Infrastructure projects are happening at the same time, you know, water, sewer, street railways, That's the beginnings right. of the elevated railway, just everything's happening at once in the last it's couple of years. It's all happening and, and fantastic landmark buildings are being made like the building that, that we, that the museum is in. Somehow the city had enough money to build this giant European style estate. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and on the inside, it's got beaded ceilings. And I mean, it's, it's pretty fancy for, for a utilitarian building. Uh, but that was the era of the golden age when you could do those things. And it wasn't just done willy nilly. Uh, there was an effort to sort of use those structures to teach the many new immigrants that were coming into the city at that time. And that really ties into the story we tell here at the, at the museum, which is, this desperate effort to try to uh, meet the needs of a very unexpectedly growing city uh, that nobody really realized that all this activity would attract people from all over the world. I mean, this is a place to go and make your new life. So you mentioned that E.D. Levitt does eventually design a a large pumping engine for Boston a little later in his career. So if if he was spending 50 years working on copper mining in uh, Michigan, there must have been some side projects also. Very much so. I, and that's what's very interesting about Levitt's life. Uh, and I'm really trying to find out more about him as a person because, well, I mean, just for the very practical reason that getting up to Houghton County, Michigan from Cambridge at least a couple times a year could not have been an easy thing in the 1870s and 80s. Uh, that had to be a very laborious effort, uh, especially in the winter, of course. So he, um, he wasn't living in Michigan full time. No, he was not. Oh, he was commuting back and forth. Okay. Yes, he was commuting, commuting always back to Cambridge. Uh, so his whole life was really centered around Cambridge. But there was a lot of travel, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, they were they were there were many side projects uh, in addition, and it seemed Agassiz didn't care about that as long as Levitt did the job that he needed to to do. 
uh, Levitt was free to do many other projects. So he, he was constantly doing that. And uh, really, ultimately, by the 1880s, he was going all over the world. He had been, he reached a, a point of recognition where, where he was really well known. Another reason that it's very sad that he's completely unknown in our modern times, because back then he, in his circle, certainly very, very famous guy. So he would work on whatever projects uh, that he felt were legitimate. One of those was the city of Boston uh, came to him and asked him to build a customized pumping engine um, in 1883 here at the uh, Chestnut Hill Reservoir Pumping Station. And they asked him specifically because they knew of his experience as a customized engine builder. I mean, up in Michigan, he had to build, oh, there were all different kinds of things. They weren't, it wasn't just pumping. It was hauling things up from the ground. It was giant sand wheels that threw out uh, the leftover tailings of uh, sand and, and rock that would have come from the mining effort, man hoists, I mean, all kinds of things that he would build. So he was the perfect guy here uh, at the Chestnut Hill site because they had a real problem. They had just built a brand new facility, uh, and within five years, it was overwhelmed with demand. Uh, the city had grown so quickly uh, that the equipment that, even though it was very new, was just not capable of providing enough water. It was running 24 hours a day, and there was a real sense of desperation as to what's going to happen because at that point, you had tens of thousands of immigrants coming in annually, and, and nobody knew what to do. So Levitt was charged with building this thing as fast as he could and with as much capacity as he could possibly put into it. So, And he was successful at that and was a real challenge. And within two years, he built this engine while two smaller engines were pumping away furiously. And he had to do it in a way that didn't compromise their, their operation. So he was able to uh, make it run very quickly so that it could have much greater capacity. In fact, he doubled the capacity of the site ultimately. 20 million gallons a day is what that engine pumped. He was also able to fit it into the existing structure on this, this beautiful building. It would have been very difficult to explain uh, how you had to remodel it after five years. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. So he had to make it happen within the site itself. Uh, and so he had to adjust the pumps and the, uh, and the engine itself to fit into this sort of cramped space. And he was able to do all that successfully and within budget. And as his uh, trademark uh, efficiency, he, he, it was extremely efficient for its day. So it was an enormous success all around, uh, an success for the city of Boston that, he, that they actually averted this potential disaster for not having enough drinking water for its inhabitants. And obviously a success for Levin himself because he'd actually, he actually made this thing happen. What's particularly interesting to me about that engine is, uh, and it's even till today, it's referred to as the German engine. And that's because Levitt used his uh, connections in Germany to make this engine happen. Uh, he had made, uh, a couple of years before that, he had met uh, a, some German engineers, uh, and he had also made a connection with the Krupp company uh, in Essen, Germany. And, and Krupp was a very distinguished uh, dynasty of metallurgists uh, from the Middle Ages, really. And, and they were really armaments makers for their entire history, probably st still are. But at that time, they also were the only company capable of casting incredibly strong and very, very large components that Levitt needed for his engine. If he was going to have this thing pumping away at, at some ungodly speed, he needed it to be reliable and not have pieces break. And so he felt that the Americans were not capable of, of manufacturing that kind of quality. And they weren't. That, that, that only Germany, only Krupp could do that. And also at the same time, he met a, a guy named Alwa Riedler, who was at the German Polytechnic Institute there, really his counterpart in Germany, uh, who was also a efficiency expert uh, and he had designed a valving system that could work in conjunction with a very fast-moving piece of equipment. So it was kind of a radical design, uh, and it was a radical concept, I think, to use German parts and German engineering in, in a composition piece 
Uh, I don't know if that being done anywhere else at that time. Uh, and I'm, there were many that were looking askance at, at why was Levitt doing that. Uh, but they were quieted when this thing actually worked. It, it, it did what it was supposed to do. So nobody really questioned it, uh, his efforts at that point. But, of course, later on, there were questions. Uh, certainly within 25 years, the Krupp company was making tanks and, and uh, battleships uh, for World War I. And so uh, they were not our friends. But at that time, they were, and, and, and that kind of connection is, is absolutely fascinating to me. He traveled in these amazing circles. Uh, he actually, I believe he met the Kaiser. He would travel with the Krupp, obviously very wealthy dynasty. And so he was probably accustomed there when he was in Europe to be treated as he should have been uh, all along, and not so much in the United States, but certainly there with an enormous amount of respect. Uh, as as he would have deserved. Uh, so he traveled many times uh, to Europe, to Germany, uh, so much so that his two daughters uh, ultimately spoke German, and they had a German nanny come back and live with them in Cambridge. And I read this fascinating article about the neighborhood where he lived after he died. Um, they, during World War One, his family was really ostracized. They, even though everybody liked his daughters, they were shunned because they spoke German and they were Germanophiles, really. Uh, and of course, during World War I, that was not, not a good thing. So the article is sort of regretful in the sense that they had to be shunned because they weren't part of the, uh, of what was going on at the day, you know. Uh, but that just sort of reinforces that whole idea of, of Levitt's international connections. Yeah, I know when I was trying to get prepared for this this conversation, I read his obituary in the Cambridge Chronicle and it really highlighted his many trips to Europe, his high the, the high regard he was held in on the European continent. It seemed like that was a very central part of his life. Yes, very much so. I think that would that sustained him. But again, Levitt was a guy, we don't know anything about him as a person. He he was a very reticent guy, very quiet the very few publications that he uh, put out there were very highly technical, almost incomprehensible, really, to the layman. So he, he never promoted himself uh, at all. And, and so we don't really know the world from the point of view of, of Erasmus Darwin Levitt. There are tiny indications of his character. I mean, he was very introspective. There's a great story of how um, he was down in the mines in Michigan and at that time, a man lift was one of the most dangerous things you could ever do. It was really a giant cable lowering you down on a tiny platform the size of your feet. And you held on to the cable and you would go down a mile into the ground. Of course, no safety precautions whatsoever. And the story goes that Levitt had a conundrum that he was pondering over and that he was being lifted out of the mine after inspecting what was going on there. And just barely managed to step off as they shouted to him to pay attention to the fact that he was had reached the surface uh, because if you, if you didn't let go and jump off, then you would be flung down and killed. And, and there are other stories of, of him being so engaged mentally that, that he was not seeing the world around him. And I think that's the kind of character that he was. Um, he wasn't self-promoting in any way. Uh, even upon his death – just before his death, he spoke to a group and, and he said, uh, I'm not going to, uh, you know, you know me as a quiet man with few words and I'm not going to make any changes here. <laughs> Pretty much. I have nothing to say. And, and I find that really fascinating. I, it's sad because that leaves very little record of him. And because he was not a, a, a self-promoter, uh, I think history really has forgotten his achievements. You know, the other guys – like, let's say, uh, Worthington or uh, George Corliss, they were very much self-promoters and are, are well-known today. Uh, but Levitt was not. And I think, uh, I think that's one insight into his character. And Corliss is another steam engineer for somebody who might not know, know the name. Yes, George Corliss was probably the most prominent American steam engineer. Uh, he really invented the... The whole idea. He was really the a, a little bit of a generation before Levitt, uh, and Levitt learned from him. 
but he was probably the most brilliant of all steam engineers uh, in the United States at that time in the, in the in the 19th century. He would have been sort of the equivalent of Alexander Graham Bell for the uh, for steam equipment, I think, um, working out of Providence. One thing I'm I'm curious about as we were preparing for this interview, exchanged some emails. You teased me with the idea that somehow the Levitt pump, the Levitt pumping engine in your museum is connected to the actress Elizabeth Taylor. And you have me really stumped here. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I've always thought that it's, uh, it's always fun to make connections with popular history. So there is a obscure connection with the, uh, with the Levitt engine and Elizabeth Taylor. And, and that is that it's connected to the Krupp family. And as I mentioned, they were a dynasty, a German dynasty. And well, it all really started with, uh, Alfred Krupp. Krupp was incarcerated after the World War II, but only briefly. Then he went and got married and he had this 33 carat diamond and he gave it to his wife. Once he was released, uh, and his wife eventually divorced him, the diamond ended up disappearing. But ultimately, in the late 1960s, Richard Burton shows up with the diamond, 33-carat diamond, and gives it to Elizabeth Taylor. And she has it on her finger. I have this great photograph of that. And after her death, the diamond went on auction in 2011 for $3.5 million. That's a big deal. So, it's a big diamond. So you can see on the, uh, the engine here, there's a, there's a component that's stamped Friedrich Krupp S in Germany, 1893. And that piece is directly connected to the Krupp diamond on Elizabeth Taylor's finger. So that's, the, that's an obscure connection, but there are, there are other connections too. I mean, the Krupp family was, uh, I, mean, I won't go into too much about them, but they were very bizarre and, Levitt's friend, who was uh, who was Friedrich Krupp, ended up committing suicide uh, before he turned forty because he was in, involved in a sex sc scandal uh, on the island of Capri, and so that had to have been distressing, I imagine, to Levitt when he because uh, he was associated very closely. They were close friends, and in fact, there are there's correspondence with him and Friedrich quite a bit of that on, in Levitt's beautiful calligraphic handwriting, expressing his. Uh, admiration for Friedrich. And then, then Friedrich had to commit suicide out of really out of the fact that he had embarrassed his, his family and Germany. Well, speaking of obscure connections, <laughs> I realized that we've actually profiled another Levitt on the show, Henrietta, Henri, Henrietta Swan Levitt, who was one of the, the so-called Harvard computers uh, back in episode 58. We talked about them and in particular, she devised a method for measuring the distance between the stars that then uh, really revolutionized astronomy. And it turns out that she is, in fact, from the same Levitt family. Yes, that's right. Uh, Erasmus was her uncle. Uh, and I, from what I understand, they were close. Uh, they certainly lived together for almost a decade in, in Cambridge uh, when she was doing uh, a lot of her work there at Harvard. I, I don't know much other than that. There's very little information I've found to date about that. But Levitt had a sad end of his life, uh, even actually his later part of his life. His wife died when he was relatively young, I think in probably in his early 60s, I think. So he was all alone in, in a very pretty large house uh, in Cambridge. Uh, and his daughters were there with him and, and eventually Henrietta also came and lived in this sort of villa that he had created for himself. And I, I always got the sense that they sort of took care of him uh, because he was so, so uh, ethereal, really. And he would, I, I imagine he wouldn't know how to cook himself breakfast. You know, he was uh, working on designs in his mind and uh, he probably wasn't very practical with those uh, basic life functions. So it seems, I seems like the sort of person who, uh, who, even if he knew how to, cook breakfast might forget to eat breakfast if he was working <laughs> yes exactly right yeah to be told probably bathing was the same thing yes I, and i and i i get the sense that henrietta helped him uh and they 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 were sort of roommates and, and family members together 
that's that's the feeling I get for his from his later life. As he faded, uh, many people would come and visit him, and I'm sure they, that again Henrietta and his daughters would have to, you know, take care of these visitors that would come and paying their respects to him. But when he died, and you may have read this in his obituary, they said, you know. Erasmus never really had any hobbies or any other uh, activities. And so when his uh, ability to do his job faded, he, he faded. There was, there was really nothing left for him. And, and I thought that's really a kind of a poignant insight into the kind of person he was. And having spent so much of his life in Cambridge and being strongly associated with Cambridge, his final resting place is in Cambridge as well, right? That's right, at the Cambridge Cemetery. And, and, and I had a funny experience uh, last Jeez, I don't know. I guess it was in the summer. I went and looked for, I tried to find his grave. Uh, and I didn't do it in the normal way where you look it up. I just thought, well, I'll go to the Cambridge Cemetery, which is across from Mount Auburn Cemetery. So it's the, the city cemetery. Uh, I thought I would just find his grave. Well, that's not that easy in a place where thousands of people are resting there. Uh, so I wandered around and I thought, how strange it is that I'm looking for, in a way, closure to Erasmus Darwin Levitt and his final spot. Uh, and I never did find it, although now I know where it is. Uh, and, and Henrietta is also buried with him, along with other family members. So at least there is a, a pilgrimage site, uh, if anybody wants to go there, and, and a closure for him, if there isn't a statue yet. Thank you so much for, for sharing the story of E.D. Levitt and the waterworks in, in Chestnut Hill with us. If people want to find out more about either of those topics or if they want to visit the Waterworks Museum, what do they need to know? Well, I think the first thing is uh, to go to our website at uh, www.waterworksmuseum.org. And what's really cool about that is we have a virtual tour piece. that You press this button and you can actually see all around and, and zoom in on things. And so you can see the Levitt engine really clearly through that device. But I would also hope that you would come down to the Waterworks Museum where we are. Uh, we do not charge admission, uh, although we're happy to take uh, donations, certainly. Uh, and we are open from uh, Wednesday through Sunday, 11 to 4. And we have, you know, what's great about our place is we have very engaged volunteers that love to talk about our site and the things you see and, and share uh, stories with, uh, with everybody that comes in. We get a lot of people from out of town talk about their water systems. Uh, we do talk about modern things like uh, our concerns about water and uh, really understanding how what a precious resource it is. Uh, we also have a very strong educational component where more than a thousand kids a year come at, to our museum and learn about uh, water quality. And I mean, it's amazing to see them do the same water quality tests that were done a hundred years ago here on the site. I mean, it's just so, it feels so right for this place to be doing just what was done back in the day. I, I think the, the founders of this place would be very pleased to see that. And as somebody who, who has visited this museum, I can endorse the sentiment wholeheartedly. It's, it's really a fascinating site to visit. And the, the scale when you get inside is really unexpected that, when when you say that these machines are huge, you're you're not joking. They're three, four stories tall. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique that way. It has a very kind of cathedral like sense on the inside, uh, an industrial cathedral. You know, it, it's kind of unique. And I welcome anybody to come down and check it out. Well, Eric Peterson, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been my privilege. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. That about wraps it up for today. To learn more about Edie Levitt and Eric Peterson, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 137. We'll have a profile of Levitt by the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, another profile from the Proceedings of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and obituaries from the Cambridge Chronicle and the Journal of the Boston Society of Civil Engineers. We'll also have pictures of his engines taken from Levitt's collected papers, which are held at the Smithsonian, and we'll have a picture of a working model of one of them that's held at the Harvard Collection of Historical Scientific Instruments. If we sparked your interest in the Waterworks Museum, we'll also include information in the show notes about how to visit that. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Eden on the Charles, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. 
You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and you might become our first voice caller on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. Or just tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way to help new listeners discover us. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. <laughs>